What is up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastic this evening. This is Rafael Garcia here with Shuan Humes for episode number 229 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to join us. Before I throw it over to Shuan and we get into our show tonight, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who's taking the time to listen to us and listen to what we bring every single week. As always, you can check us out across multiple platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and on YouTube at MMA Ratings, as you're probably doing right now. You can hit us up on our flagship at MMARatings.net and .com. You can also catch us on Instagram and Twitter, MMA Ratings Net in both spaces. Myself, I'm R. Garcia underscore sports. Sharon Humes, a.k.a. Hoodie Mellow, is at Black Jordan Breen. So, Shawan, why don't you let everybody know how you're doing? Oh, I'm good. Staying busy as always. Uh, just, I don't know, man. I'm just tired of being right all the time. Just, it's a burden. It's a burden. So, let's go ahead, man. We got quite a bit to talk about because I want to get right into it. And UFC 270, Francis Ngannou, Serena Ngannou fought for the heavyweight title of the world and we have Francis Ngannou retaining via unanimous decision I think it was 49-46 twice and 48-47 it wasn't the most exciting fight it didn't go how well you you're going to talk about how you kind of pretty much planned how that was going to go out it didn't go how a lot of people wanted it to go with like a highlight reel knockout or something like that but it was a fight where Ngannou established himself as someone who was still growing Excuse me, it's someone who was still growing in mixed martial arts. And what did we see there? We saw someone who was able to come into a fight injured, dealing with the ACL, MCL injury, which he's getting surgery for, and find a way to pick apart his opponent. He has some bad, he has some bad spots. I thought he was losing going, or I thought that he was either tied or he could possibly be behind going in, in, into the last round, but he was able to get the victory, um, out-positioning gone in, in multiple opportunities to get the win there. So, Shawan, first, let's start with how did you score the fight, if you remember, and then hit me with a technical breakdown. What did you see from both guys? Um, I, I thought, I, if I recall, I, I think I had it three to two, if I recall. I don't I don't think it was four to one because um, – Early, in the earlier exchanges, I felt like Gon was a little bit more technical. I mean, Ngani was missing a lot. He landed some fairly big shots, but he wasn't able to really get any momentum on the feet. And I, I count defense. And uh, Gon was more effective defensively. He couldn't. He didn't do really a lot of damage. He didn't really commit to hard counters consistently. But he was kind of touching Ngani a lot. He was getting away from Ngani's bigger shots. And um, I don't really. I will say that he, I mean, to me, because I count offense and defense, I feel like he, there was a couple, basically those rounds, he he was able to kind of control the pace, but as far as damage done or imposing your will or coming forward, I don't I don't think he was doing that. And so I could I could see an argument where people would say that Ngannou won at four to one just because he was imposing his will. He was the one firing off and he landed probably the bigger shots. I just thought Gagne was a little bit cleaner more defensively sound, and I thought he was frustrating uh, and got him on the feet a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want me to go into the breakdown? or? Yeah, I wanted you to uh, talk about what you saw from both men and how did and, and did it go kind of how you were looking? Well, I, I, t- and I told people this, so I have to say this at the beginning, people on the uh, 
people on Twitter were like, well, nobody could have seen it going this way. And I'm like, obviously, you didn't listen to our podcast. Well, actually, almost 200 people listened to it after, probably after the fact to find out if I said what I said. And I told her, but I said, what God is going to do is he's going to pressure him because he's the bigger puncher. He's going to get to the body, kick the legs. He's going to try to get his hands on Gagne so he can control him and bully him and land shots. And that he was going to use his wrestling to win a decision. And and people just, you know, I that's exactly what I said. That's how I ended my prediction. He's going to use his physicality and his strength to pressure him, get to the body, out-wrestle him to a decision, which is exactly what happened. And a lot of people can't fathom that because, you know, they feel like something had to be wrong or Gagne was off or Nganu was off. But the fact of the matter is both guys kind of play to their type. The only difference is, as I said before, is Nganu had already been faced with challenges. He already faced athletic fighters. He already faced fighters with comparable skills. He already had faced guys who put him in adverse situations, and he had to work his way out of them. Gagne hadn't really felt, hadn't really faced any adversity. He's basically been in control of every fight he's been in. He's been the one landing the most shots. He's been the one avoiding the most shots. He's controlling the pace. He's dictating where the fight goes and where it happens and when he gets a submission and when he lands shots and when he doesn't land shots. For the most part, he's been in complete control. I didn't have any faith that he would be able to navigate a spot when he wasn't put in control. And I didn't have any faith in his corner because his corner is essentially the same corner as Francis Ngannou had. And the habit I've seen in these guys is they're a little bit of front runners. When they have clear advantages and clear paths to victory, they look spectacular. When they face an opponent who can take things away and put their guys in a, in a bad spot or put their guys where they're losing rounds, there aren't very many adjustments to be made. When Nganu fought Stevie the first time, what adjustment did he make? He made none. And, his, and the coach, Ferdinand, blamed that on Nganu. Maybe it's his fault, maybe it's not. But in the second opportunity, where he had a top-end, high-athletic, high-skilled, dominant heavyweight, as soon as he started losing the fight, he had no options. He had no adjustments. He had no... He had no strategic adjustments. He had no technical adjustments. He he misread the fight completely. At no point, once in, once Gan lost control of the fight, was he able to really ever re, regain control. He was able to build any momentum. He wasn't at submission throughout the back. He couldn't consistently get takedowns of his own. He couldn't really stop takedowns. He couldn't slow down Ngannou's pressure. He couldn't. He, he just couldn't do much of anything except not get knocked out. You know, by being defensively sound and moving. So. Um, I wasn't really surprised by it because I, I I just didn't have any faith that Gon would have an answer if he was put in bad spots, if he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. And I knew that Nganu, even though both guys had grown since the last time they trained, Nganu's trained a lot more. He's gone with a different camp. He's had he's been forced to develop other skills, dealing with Usman and other people. He he's been forced to round out his game because he saw what happened when he just leaned on his power and his athleticism against a guy with knowledgeable experience striking. And a good wrestling game. He saw what happened. And basically what happened to him against Stipe is what he turned around and did to Gagne. That's pretty much what he did. The, he just took what happened to him and imposed it on Gagne, and Gagne had no answers for it. So let me ask you a question. I saw something very – or I saw something Gagne said. Um, I believe it was on Ariel's show where he said that he looked at Gagne and he saw himself – when he fought Stipe the first time. And if we can think back to that first fight, um, the first round was basically Ngannou trying to knock Stipe out. And when he couldn't, it just went downhill from there because he wasn't able to make any adjustments, as you were just saying. What are your thoughts on that there? Do you think that that is a good assessment from the champion, talking about what he saw in his um, 
contender on Saturday? Yeah, well, it's like when Ngannou first fought, even when he fought a Stipe and fought other people, I said there were holes in his game. People were just looking at the dynamic finishes. They're not understanding that he's a counter guy. They're not understanding that he's not got textbook technique past the first one or two shots. They're not understanding that he hasn't shown any defensive wrestling. He hasn't shown conditioning against it. He hasn't shown the ability to work his way into position with jabs, set up combinations. It's all been just he's landing on guys and guys are done. Guys are scared of getting in touch with him. He lands on this fight. It's over. He's, he's just been dominating off being clever, having a decent strategy, and having an incredible skill set. The same thing could be said with Gon. The only difference is Gon was more of a technical fighter. But even in being more technical and defensively sound, the fact of the matter is there's holes in his game. Like People are like, oh, he's untouchable. A lot of guys hit him. Derek Lewis landed on him. Volkov landed on him. Rosenstrike landed on him. They didn't land the way they wanted to land on him, but they landed on him. They got to spots where they could tie him up, get into clinches, or get takedowns. But these fighters, a lot of these fighters don't have that aspect in the game. Rosenstrike doesn't have enough confidence to take someone down. Derek Lewis ain't really trying to take anybody down. And Volkov, probably given how strong Gan is and how physically imposing and how he was controlling him on the feet, he probably didn't want to take any chances on getting um, sprawled out and punished for the takedown attempt and then end up on his back and get submitted or get beaten up himself. So all that was a, ma- a combination of Gan's technical skills, his footwork, his ability to manage distance, his ability to land counter shots. But what people were missing out on is the fact that, A, you can touch Gan. He's not, he's not invincible. B, he's not a guy who takes chances. He's like a Valentina Shevchenko. He'll only, he won't really ratchet it up until he feels, no, he's like George St. Pierre. He won't ratchet it up until he feels completely safe. He'll pick at you. He'll pop, he'll peck at you. He'll let you run into some shots. But once he starts finding his rhythm and he sees you can't keep up with him, then he'll turn it on. But he's not going to take, he's not, he's not going to take chances. So anytime you impose your will on him, you come after him. There's not really a high price to pay. He'll kick your legs and land a little shot there, but he won't put a combination together. He won't sit down on a shot and really try to rock you or get you out of there. He's just going to chip away, chip away, chip away, chip away, chip away until he sees a clear weakness, and then he's going to explode. You can take advantage of guys like that because they're going to let you stick around because at no point are they trying to end the fight. And while you're defensively sound by moving and slipping and parrying, the fact of the matter is he doesn't have a great jab. His defense is mostly his footwork and his legs. He doesn't move his head particularly well. He doesn't move his upper body particularly well. His shots are fairly predictable. He's just a much better athlete than most guys, and he's much more established in his skill set as far as his striking. But there are holes that you can exploit. And against somebody who's much bigger, who's probably a better athlete, and who hits way harder, and a guy by his own estimation, he said earlier, when we when we sparred before, when Francis got my hand, his hands on me, he was so strong, I couldn't do anything with him. When you have those kind of physical advantages, and you, you, you know you can take whatever's coming back at you, and you know that guy won't really turn it on until he sees you hurt, you can just, you can just stretch forward. You can use those big shots as ways to as entries to get your hands on them. You don't have to take a step back because you know that he's not really going to put any heat on it until he sees you hurt. So you have lots of opportunities to get your hands on him. And when he's pressured, his footwork, it's not as sharp. It seems sharp because he's making guys pay and guys don't want to get hit. So he has more room. He, his angles are sharper. But when you stay on him, he's not that comfortable. And when you have the threat of really hurting him, he's not nearly as willing to counter. He's just trying to get away and reset and then come back in. He's not punching with you. He's getting out of the way of a shot, and then he's firing back, which is the difference between a same-time counter and an after-time counter. He's countering after the time and then coming back at you. He's not countering with you because he's he doesn't want to get in exchanges. He doesn't want to put himself at risk. So all Nganu had to do was impose his will, impose his physicality. 
And you have to know that Gon wasn't expecting him to wrestle. I don't know why he wouldn't expect him to wrestle because nobody's really tried to wrestle him. I don't know why he wouldn't expect that from a guy who's much bigger, much stronger, and probably a better athlete. Why wouldn't he get his hands on you and just take you down? We've, we've never seen you on your back. We've seen you pressured. We've seen you hit. But we've never seen you on your back or pressed up against the cage. Why wouldn't he take that route? The fact that he wasn't prepared for that is what is yet another example of the limitation of his, of his coaching. Um, so it's that it's it's the inverted. Uh, it's the same thing as what happened in Ganu, but it's just an inverted version. And in Ganu's case, he can end the fight like that. So after you get through those first couple minutes, his threat lessens because he spends up so much energy trying to get that take there. He doesn't have an answer because he didn't expect the fight to go past a round or two. In Gandhi's case, he expects the fight to go rounds, and he's only going to do enough damage and score points and stay out of the way of danger. He's not going to risk hurting you or put, getting you out of there early. He wants to make sure it's a clear runway for his takeoff. And you could use and Francis used that against him by constantly imposing him, pressing him, and making him throw shots he didn't want, making his footwork break down from the threat of his physicality and the threat of his power. And then just getting his hands on him and ragdolling him. And, and he just, that's what he did. He just ragdolled him. Stipe exhausted Nganu and kind of suffocated him and wore him out. Nganu just basically controlled position. Once he put Ghani on his back, Ghani did not have the athleticism or the skill set to get back up. He just controlled him. He didn't really hurt him. He just took him down and controlled him. So um, I would say that he, he made a correct assumption. And as I said before the fight, Nganu's knowledge of Gan was more than Gan's knowledge of Nganu. He knew Nganu years ago before he got a new coach, before he got a little bit sharper offensively, before his footwork cleaned up, before he started working on his wrestling entries. He, he didn't have a point of reference to use. It, even if Gan has improved, he's working with the same team. So they have the same philosophy, the same development skills, the same approach. So he knew what to expect, and he was able to exploit it. And Gan wasn't able to exploit what Nganu did because he had no idea what Nganu did. He thought Ngana was going to come in there looking to bang, and Ngana was like, nah, nah, I got this. I got something else for you. So what was really interesting there is that you mentioned that Ngana was just doing a lot of control on the ground, which is very true. He wasn't necessarily looking to even rain down a lot of damage or anything like that. I was surprised to an extent that Ghana couldn't create any additional scrambles, maybe get out and get back to his feet, get back to the cage, something like that. That really stood out to me, and then he made the mistake of – going for that heel hook when he was in a very bad position, uh, which, I mean, we were watching the fight in the office on Saturday. And when that happened, I mean, it was pretty much like, what are you doing type of of moment? Because he wasn't anywhere near the correct position to finish that. Um, Well, one thing, one thing, you're you're more of a grappler than I am, clearly much more accomplished, much more competition tested. Is against a lesser heavyweight, or maybe someone who who wasn't who doesn't have the athleticism or some of the tools that Ngannou has, I think that maybe Gon could have finished that, or maybe the guy would have just panicked. But what, what, do you think like a lesser head, like some of the other heavyweights he beat with those submissions? I think they would have panicked with that that leg lock. They might have given up. See, no, because the position that the, at, at the very most, if you go back and look at it, at the very most, Ngannou was maybe experiencing a little bit of ankle pain. Like at the very most, if you look at the way um, Guy st- sat back and the way he um, his legs, he like he wasn't controlling the knee, he wasn't controlling the hips, he wasn't controlling anything really. So at the very most, if Ngannou was experiencing any pain, it was like a minimal ankle pain. So it was nothing to really kind of be the panic from. 
there. If you straighten your leg, kick your foot out, you're able to get on top just as he did there. What I was wondering was what coaching did Gaia get heading into that fifth round? Was he fighting thinking as if he was down on the scorecards and he just went for a finish because he thought he had to get the finish? Because how I was looking at that, if he stays on top, he would have um, he wouldn't have won on the scorecards, but how I was looking at the, at the fight, I thought that at the very most it was tied going into the fifth. And had he stayed on top, I would have thought he had actually won. Well, my whole impression of it goes back to what I originally said. He doesn't want to take chances when he, after being summarily taken down repeatedly, had the bigger shots landed on you, been controlled for the majority of the fight. You have one chance when you're a superior position and you're supposedly a world-class athletic striker. How do you not just take a chance and try to finish it? You know, like just open up a strike, see what happens. Maybe you land a shot, maybe you cut him, maybe you rock him, maybe not. But what he did was he played it safe. He went for what he thought was safe. I'll go for the submission. Worst case scenario, I end up on my back and he's on top of me. He's not punishing me. So he'll just control me to the end of the fight. But there's no real risk of getting really taken down again in a really bad position. And there's no real risk of ending up back on the feet or exhausting myself and now being dead tired in front of the biggest puncher in, in MMA history. Like he took a safe way out. He never took any sort of chance to defend the takedown or to escape to get back up or to finish the fight. And it's one thing that a lot of fighters mess up when they get into these fights. It's like um, Chuck Liddell used to say, he's like, you know why I'm so hard to take down or hard to keep down? Because I'm willing to risk getting submitted. I'll get up in a sloppier manner to risk getting submitted to make sure I am not controlled and allow for them to secure position and finish me. Everybody wants to make sure they don't roll into the arm bar, into the guillotine, the knee bar, whatever. Sometimes you just need to get up. Sometimes the best thing you do is you take down, you give everything you can to get back to your feet because that guy has to take you down again. You get back up, you're, you're wearing on each other. So if you have a little bit more than him, you can get to him later. But Gagne was trying to make sure, excuse me, Gagne was trying to tie up, make sure he didn't get bombed on, make sure that Ngannou couldn't, in, improved position instead of just scrambling and forcing a pace. And now in hindsight, knowing about Ngannou's knees, if he would have been forced to scramble, there's no way his body would have really held up. He would have had a lot of opportunities, but you have to take chances. And it's like I told you before, we talked about before with open scoring. Some fighters are just risk averse. And, and that's just the reality. Just like people always say, oh, you got like, I won't, like, I never fought again. But just to be clear, I never fought. When I spar people, I'll tell somebody, I'll tell the fighter I, I'm working with, you have to accept you're going to get hit and walk through fire and get to this person. Me personally, when I spar, I'm like a pot shot guy. I mean, if I had to, maybe, but that's not my first, second, or third option. That's that's not who I am. And it's clearly not who Gon is. And for Gon to really make the leap past league guys, he's going to have to take some chances. He's going to have to risk getting finished. He's going to have to risk getting exhausted to win. And that was the difference. And Gon was willing to sell out on those takedowns and, do, and go outside of his comfort zone and risk exposing himself. Because if Gon was ready for those, he could have submitted them. He could have scrambled and got back to his feet. And Ngannou would have been in a world of trouble. Ngannou took chances. Stipe did against him. Gon refused to take chances. He refused to do anything different. He wanted to make sure he was 100% safe. He wasn't taking any unnecessary punishment. He wasn't taking any other necessary chances of getting submitted or in a bad position where he'd get hit. And that's what eventually cost him the fight. At no point did he try a flying knee, try to land something big on the feet, or try to scramble back up. It was always, let me make sure I can time up, make sure I'm, I'm right position. Now I'll start working. When you got a guy that big, that strong, who knows how to wrestle on top of you, what are you going to do? You're not getting a better position. You're not submitting him from the bottom. Gon's not that kind of fighter. So it's like he, he gave the fight away because 
he he didn't want to push himself. And Ganu lost against Stipe because he couldn't push himself as far as cardio and technique. Gan lost the fight because he wouldn't push himself as far as taking a risk and being more offensively aggressive. There were moments where he could have gotten Ganu on the feet. And at the end of the fight where he took him down, he could have got him on the ground. But he'd rather just let me be safe and try for the submission instead of just selling out to finish. And and I think there would have been a good chance for him to finish if he could have just opened up. Yeah, I mean, that's really that's that's some really good thought, some thoughtful information there, sir. Let's move on a little bit because I want I don't want to go too far over time today. Let's talk about what's next for both individuals here. Francis Ngannou is getting surgery on his ACL and, and MCL, so that's probably going to put him out for ten months at the very least. He's made it clear he will not fight for five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars anymore. He wants seven figures and up, and he's in a position where his contract is expected to end in January of next year. So, do you think this is the last time we saw Francis Ngannou fight in the octagon? I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I would probably say you have to say yes, because otherwise the UFC would have to con- concede to his his request. They'd have to leave it open for boxing. They'd have to guarantee to pay him so much more money. And the thing about it is, Gan, I mean, excuse me, Ngannou did. I always talk about guys who complain about money. They won't go into specifics. They won't risk their career. They won't bet on themselves. They always talk a little bit to get attention. And they always talk about how it's it's everybody else. It's everybody else. It's everybody else. And then they get paid and they shut up. Or what's worse is guys are company men until they start losing and then they start talking. And Ganu won his title and in the biggest spot started talking. Then he had this other fight against a guy who, who had a very good chance of beating him, stylistically speaking, and he was injured and he still came in talking before, knowing he was at 100%, knowing he could lose. And if he got knocked out or submitted or even lost the decision, it was all over. The UFC was going to just bury him he was going to be done kept talking he won the fight and even after the fight he's continued to talk so i i acknowledge him for that and he's one of the few guys like he said he said he's willing to walk away he's willing to end his career if that's what it takes for him to not be tied to the ufc and not be under the ufc's control that's why i say i don't know if he's going to fight again because if the ufc gives him what he wants it's not the you in other cases everybody's very vague so the UFC can say, we came to an agreement, we did good business, yada, yada, yada. Dana White's been saying he's been advised wrong, he's he's not very smart, people around him aren't very smart. And Ghana has been very obvious about what the UFC's told him, how they harass his management, how there's been veiled threats at him. He's gone into great detail. So if they give him what he wants, the UFC is eventually showing that you can pull their card. Everybody else who goes head-to-head with the UFC, like a, a game of chicken, they veer off first. The UFC keeps going. And Ganu is not blinking. He refuses to turn. He'll just run the he'll just crash head on and die. He's not going to veer off and let, let the UFC up the hook. So I don't know in what world Dana White is going to willingly accept the fact that some fighter who essentially made his entire name in the UFC, it wasn't a guy who had a name outside the UFC, he made his name in the UFC, is now dictating terms to him and put himself in pole position where he can call all the shots. And the, and the UFC is going to have to capitulate if they want to keep him on the active roster. At, at this point, I don't, I don't know if that's lo- logical. And um, I don't know if that's likely. I mean, what are they going to do? Do another interim title buy with Gon and somebody? Gon already lost. The, he already lost in Gon. Nobody's going to buy that. What are they going to do? Stipe? Stipe was already lost. What I think they'll do, if, they're, if, if it was me, and what I think they will do is they'll book some type of tournament, like a UFC 
standard. And, and yes, Ghana won't be a part of the tournament, so like their champion will be gone. But if it was me, I would look at booking a eight-man tournament. And I'm going to pull up the UFC rankings real quick. Let's see who would be a part of this. It's heavyweight. It's heavyweight. Can you find eight fighters? Who should be fighting so, a tournament? Here you go. Like, if we're going to do this, and they said, let's do a tournament to find a, a, a re- replacement. They can go Cyril Gaon, Stipe Miocic, uh, Derek Lewis, Curtis Blades, Alexander Volkov, Jaren um, Rosenstruck. They can even do Chris Dawkins. And if they were smart, they would pay John Jones to be that eighth heavyweight. But, 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 let, but let's look a little bit deeper in this. They put themselves in an awkward situation. So now you've had this guy pull your card, pull the curtain back. And even if they have this tournament, the specter of Ngannou is going to be over it. People are still going to bring this question up. Why isn't Ngannou involved? Will the winner face Ngannou first? That's going to be another question. And secondly, to get John Jones to fight, John Jones wants to be paid. So either way, then Dana White's going to have to concede to someone to get what he wants and to make it anywhere near a viable and financially successful operation. He's going to have to concede somewhere. He doesn't want to concede to John Jones, but if Ngannou's out, he, he almost needs Jones to make this somewhat legitimate and have some sort of presence. Gone doesn't sell. Stephen Miyoki does. Stephen Miyoki doesn't sell. None of the names you mentioned sell except for John Jones. So then John Jones has got to get paid. And if John Jones gets paid, guess what the question is now? Well, you met his demands. Why the hell aren't you meeting the heavyweight champion's demands? Well, uh, you know, we've got to talk it over with his management. Nah, dude, we already we already know what ha- we know about his management. You know, I mean, it's it's put them in a very very tough spot. Either way, they're going to have to give in to somebody. And once once that little crack in the do- in the in the what do you call it dam comes, everybody everybody's going to. It's like when Suge Knight got knocked out, so everybody started talking shit. If Dana was knocked out by Nganu or Jones, everybody's going to be talking shit to Dana White. I was not expecting us to have a Suge Knight reference on tonight's show. So let's move on to the next topic. Davison Figueredo is your new flyweight champion. He defeated Brandon, Brandon Moreno via unanimous decision. Now, these two are 1-1-1 one, one, and one against each other. Let's talk about what we saw in the fight, and um, let's roll from there. From my perspective, you know, I picked Brandon Moreno to win. He did not respond to Figueredo's pressure from, from the very start. He had his moments, but I think that Figueredo put it on him early and enough to make him question his game. Everything He looked to be a step behind Figueredo in all of the ex- exchanges from the first round all the way up through the fifth. And that's really something that really uh, surprised me, uh, especially if you look at what I wrote about the preview for this this fight. Like I said, I expect the Moreno to win and win via violent fashion. What do you think happened there, Schwann? And then what did Fig- what did you see in Figueredo to help him pick up the victory? Well, it's like I it's like I it's like I said before. Figueredo's thing, what Henry Cejudo was gonna do is the same thing he did for Wiley to a degree. He's gonna make you fight with more poise. He's gonna make you manage distance a little bit better. In the case of Wiley against Rose, he made Wiley dr- draw Rose in. In the case of Devison Figueredo, instead of Devison leaping in with a left hook or leaping with a big right hand or leaping in for a takedown, he worked his way into the range. Because Devison always would come right at you, but now he was stalking, he was kind of pressuring, he's coming in behind weapons, sometimes jabbing, sometimes kicks, but he's working his way into range. 
Moreno was expecting Devison to do the same thing he always does, come out guns blazing, trying to land those big, hard shots that are going to scare you off and allow him to take control of the fight. Devison, and, and I'm assuming, I won't say, I don't know that he learned this, but I'm assuming Cejudo and Eric Albertson, I think that's how you say his name, my apologies, I think they watched the film and they realized, and, and Cejudo trained with Moreno. Moreno's not going to get scared. You're not going to intimidate him. That's not going to work. Moreno's tough. You're going to have to really put him out. He's not just going to get stunned and, and lay down there. He's going to be trying to get up. You get him a submission, you're going to have to choke him out. He's not just going to tap because it's uncomfortable. You can't afford to blow your energy trying to for an immediate finish or trying to bomb him out to send a message. You've got to work your way into spots, use your advantage and length, speed, and power, and punish him. And that's all he did. He's a better athlete. He's a bigger athlete. He's a harder hitter. He's got every sort of single um, advantage physically. The only advantage he didn't have in the second fight was his cardio wasn't there and his durability wasn't there. I think part of that was because of the weight. And secondly, he was exposing himself because instead of setting his stuff up, picking his shots and using controlled aggression, he was just trying to get him out there, coming in wide open with telegraph shots, getting sloppy in exchanges, not being defensively sound because he figured, oh, I can take whatever's coming back at me, and that guy can't take what I'm throwing to him. He didn't go in there with that arrogance or that position of working from an advantageous position. He acted like they were both equal, and he needed to go through every single step to get where he needed to get to so he could maximize the damage and maximize positions, which is basically what I said. Moreno is always going to be tough because Moreno fights at pace. Moreno has volume. He's going to always make a run in a fight because he's tough. He comes forward, and he's got good skills. But what allows him to dictate the terms of fights is that, A, he'll fight you at every range. B, you can't possibly scare him off. And that's what allows, C, his improvements technically as far as his boxing at range, his ability to counter, and his ability to put shots together. That's what allowed him to have success. It's predicated on these first two things. Because Devison was using more controlled aggression and footwork, the fight never got really out of hand. And because Devison was carefully getting into certain positions. He wasn't forced to have to defend takedowns. He wasn't forced to take unnecessary shots. He wasn't forced to waste a bunch of energy getting into position because he was using controlled aggression, which took away the first two advantages Moreno has. So then it came down to a matter of skill. And even though I think Moreno's probably a little bit more skilled subtly, especially when you get further along in exchanges, he's probably more established in that in wrestling and striking. The fact of the matter is, Devison is such a better athlete that as long as he fights with some conceptual awareness and strategic discipline, the matter of skill won't even be a factor as long as he doesn't get tired. And the matter of skill never was. Moreno landed some shots. Moreno had some moments where he started making runs. But since Devison had controlled his aggression and controlled his energy expenditure, he was never in a position where he was totally out of position to be taken down, totally out of position throwing shots, or totally out of position... Um, because he was backing out with his hands down or standing right in front of Moreno. He was using angles, using pressure, using accuracy to break Moreno down and back Moreno up. And, and that that poise and that discipline is what turned the fight. It wasn't anything. He was. I mean, yeah, he's probably in better shape. But if he was in better shape, but still fighting the same dumb way, Moreno would have had wide open avenues to take him down, to land shots. He would have got going early, and then Stevenson would have been a step behind the entire fight. He was a step ahead because he did not make himself as available for leads or counters versus Moreno. That's it. One change. So do we go back to the fourth fight now? They're one, one, and one, right? Yeah, one, one, and one. 
against each other. And, and I see majority of people talking about, yeah, we're ready for the fourth fight. We can see the fourth fight happening. So yes or no, do we go back to the fourth fight? And if we do not go back to the fourth fight, who is next up for the champion? Because that is not that division is not very deep. So where do we go if we don't go back to the former champion? If they do it in Mexico, it's a huge money fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fight that everybody likes. There hasn't been one bad fight between them. Um, it's a huge fight in Mexico. Um, Brandon Moreno has got a great personality. He's got some charm. He's got a tough luck story. He He's proven to be world-class as a fighter. Like, this dude is going to be a star outside way after his career is done. He's just got that kind of vibe to him. So they can maximize that, make put that in Mexico, headline it. It's going to sell out. It's going to be huge. It'll be huge across two two continents. It'll, it'll be it'll be amazing. It could be a very big event. Um, Devison seems to want it, and um, and I know Moreno probably wants it too. So I, I don't see why it doesn't happen unless Dana White just is like, uh, I'd rather see something different. But I don't know that you'll have. I don't know that Devison's going to stick around to face someone else. And I mean, Moreno's going to be there for a while, so Moreno's going to have multiple bites of the apple. But I don't know that Devison sticks around to fight some other ranked guy especially guys he thinks he's far and away better than. The the thing that I think unnerves him about this fight is that he had a draw from the first time. He got beaten decisively the second time. And even though he won this time, it wasn't by finish and it wasn't completely dominant. And I think that sticks at him. So now he wants Brandon to be at his best, be where he's comfortable. And he wants to beat him and dominate him in a similar fashion in front of his, in front of his people, in front of his crowd. So he can silence, he can silence everything and kind of put a stamp on that four fight you know in this four fight or whatever series between him and Moreno can that fight headline the whole card in Mexico if it's in Mexico yeah I think Moreno's Moreno's very huge Canelo will be there Canelo will probably drop by it'll be a big thing it'd be it'd be a big big thing they've been trying to get into that market they finally have a guy who's a champion he lost in a contested disputed decision according to the fans it's a huge fight over there, and I think a lot of people come out to see it. And Devin talks enough trash and has a little bit of a arrogant vibe around him that will bring attention. Henry Cejudo, with his background, would also bring attention because he's cornering against his countrymen. You know, it just it has a lot of storylines. They've had three great fights, and it's fighting in another country where they have one of their actual people fighting for a world title on the biggest stage and the biggest organization in mixed martial arts. How does that not sell? I mean, this is a, we're not talking about Alexa Grasso. We're talking about Brandon Moreno. Two different things here. How do you got to take shots at anybody? First it was Suge Knight. Now it's Alexa Grasso. Man, what's wrong? You, I'm telling you, you are legit acting like Hoodie Mello right now. Hoodie Mello <laughs> is in the building. Everybody's catching strays if you're in the MMA world. You don't know when you're going to get hit. Anyway, so let's move on. What else, was there anything else that stood out from you uh, for you for UFC uh, 270? For me, it was um, Kay Hansen. She did not look the part um, this time around. I remember when she was basically not the second coming, but a lot of people expected a lot from her, and this is her second loss in a row. Um, that kind of stood out for me, so I'm, I'm paying close attention to her development and what she looks like, and who does she fight next when she comes back into the octagon, when that may be. She's still very young. She has an opportunity to do a lot of growth, but I was expecting her to pick up that victory on Saturday. What stood out for you, Sharon? Was it that or something else? It was, that was just terrible, man. That was awful. Like, 
I, I mentioned this before. I said this should be a fight for her to win. She's a better athlete. She's clearly the person they're behind. I think she generally has the better skills because she's not a good enough athlete or big enough fighter to just impose her will on anybody like that. And she just fought. And I said, the fight against Jin Frey, you saw some holes in her. She was trying to impose her will. And because Jin Frey is such an athlete and kind of a physical fighter, Jin Frey was able to shug her off, meet her aggression, land some shots, and, and, and win the first round. She just wore her down because Jin Frey can't fight at pace. She fights based off of control and asserting herself and then just breaks you down over the over the length of the fight using her athleticism and her physicality. For some reason, someone in Kay Hansen's camp told her that she's some sort of dominating wrestler or some kind of physical dynamo, which I said not just on this show, but on another podcast, the big topic in women's mixed martial arts, that she is not a good enough athlete to fight in the manner that she fought against Jen Frey. She wasn't a good enough athlete to fight in the way she fought in her last fight. I think that was against Miranda Mavic, right? Might have been. I'm not sure. Um, and she wasn't a good enough athlete or big enough, strong enough athlete to fight this way against Jasmine. Jasmine is a very limited fighter as far as her striking, very limited as far as her grappling, very limited as far as her wrestling. What she does is she gets by on aggression and physicality because she's big and strong for the weight class. Kay Hansen, instead of using her speed and the quickness, which she had an advantage of because she's from a smaller weight, she could have stuck, chopped her up, used a jab, used body punches. She comes head in trying to take her down. Wore herself out trying to get a takedown, got pushed back, got beat up, got stuck with a jab, got kicked to the body, got taken down, and got roughed up. It was a terrible game plan. And she was expect great things were expected of her, but that's assuming that her camp was going to develop her appropriately. And she looks like the same fighter who fought Jenny Frey. She doesn't look one ounce better. She actually looks worse. That was a dumb fight plan. And she's too raw as a fighter to know how to make an adjustment in round when her team is clearly not giving her the right instruction. Now, I give them benefit of the doubt. Maybe they told her something different. And if that's the case, then she just doesn't listen, much like Justine Kish doesn't, and that's what she lost. But if they didn't give her better direction and they didn't train her better, understanding this is a bigger, stronger, more durable opponent, so you use your speed and your quickness and advantage over her, you don't meet her head on, then the whole camp should be fine or at least fired because they were paid to do a job. And they did not do it very well. She was completely unprepared for the opponent she faced. That was terrible. Terrible fight plan, terrible fight execution, horrible loss. And now her whole standing is she's tumbled down the rankings, and people are wondering she's what she's going to do next. And I don't care if she's dropping down the weight class. If she's going to fight with that sort of lack of cage IQ and discipline, she ain't winning nothing. She ain't winning nothing. She ain't going nowhere. That was a dumb fight plan and a dumb approach. So let's move on. Oh, I'm not, I'm not the only one who said this either. I talked to a lot of coaches. They all agreed. I'm not going to say who they were, but trust me, they were like, dude, you told me that she might do this. And I said, there's no way. I know those guys over there. There's no way. Right again. What am I going to do? I ain't going to say no names, but I'm not the only one who sees this. So don't get mad at me. There's a lot of other people who think of the same thing. I guarantee you Jasmine's corner was like, I can't believe she's serving herself up like this. What is she doing? Does she think she's going to... She's going to bully me? Oh, my God. Let me put something on this little girl. Yeah, definitely. That was a that was performance I was not expecting to see. Uh, in On Saturday and today, we got two big announcements for UFC 274, which is scheduled for May 7th. The first is Glover Teixeira is defending his title against Yuri Prochka. And today we found out that um, Charles Oliveira is defending his lightweight title 
against Justin Gaethje. So let's talk about those two fights first, starting with the lightweight title strap. Um, what are some Maybe of the anyway? light? No, uh, starting 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 with the lightweight fight, um, Alvera and Gaethje first. What are your, some of your early thoughts about that contest there? I um I just wrote a piece about that that just came out earlier today for my preview and prediction. I'm I'm picking Oliveira to win, but what are some of your thoughts about that? I think it's similar to the Dustin Poirier fight. You have an MMA striker against an MMA fighter. Dustin Poirier isn't a great kicker. He's not a great grappler. He's not a great wrestler. He can do those things, but it's always built around his ability to dominate on the feet. Justin Gaethje is better in the clinch, better kicker, all that stuff. But he's not hes not a better all-around striker. His hands are educated, but a lot of that is a matter of his punching power, his chin, his aggression, stylistic and strategic things that he can take advantage of. You can exploit him, excuse me, on the feet. It's been done before. Dustin Poirier exploited him on the feet. Oh, my Lord, this cat is, I'm going to have to send him somewhere. Um, Dustin Poirier exposed them, limited to a certain degree. Um, who else? Who else? Did it? Eddie Alvarez outboxed him on the feet. It's not like it's impossible to get to Justin Gaethje on the feet. The problem is, Oliveira maybe can't purely outwrestle Gaethje, but in an MMA category, he can match him. He can be close to him. In the striking, he can be close to him. He's done it against just as accomplished strikers as Gaethje for the most part. But when it gets to the ground, Gaethje outside of ground and pound, there's really nothing Gaethje can do to him. He's light years better than him. He can meet Gaethje at his strength. He can meet him where it's neutral, and he can totally dominate him in his strength. So it's to me, it's a lot similar to the Dustin Poirier fight. And if Dustin couldn't scare Oliveira off, I don't know that Justin Gaethje does. And just even though Gaethje uses pressure and volume and these kicks, we saw when he fought Khabib, he was a little bit more careful. He was trying instead of coming forward, he was trying to get away because he didn't want to get tied up. He didn't want to get dragged down. He didn't want to be on the ground for even a second because he knew he was that far out class. Against Khabib, the only concern is being taken down and getting submitted. Against Oliveira, if you throw a combination and he pulls guard or y'all tumble to the ground, he can scramble. He can finish from the bottom. He can finish in transition. He can finish from the top. So when it gets to the ground, there's, there's no comparison. And you being a grappler, you know, you can't make up the instincts, the subtleties, and the ability to just on the fly just like that. You can't do that in a camp. You can't do that in two camps. You can't do that in three camps. That takes years of development and time. Like you can you can scheme certain things, but you can't have an answer for every circumstance. And on the ground, Oliver is going to have an answer for everything he does. And on the feet, Gaethje can't come at him full bore because if he overcommits, react to takedown, now he's on his back. He doesn't want that. If he lands a shot and tries to come up and finish, he might end up in a triangle or an arm bar. It, it's it's not impossible for him to win, but initially, if he doesn't just dominate him and blow him out of the water, the further this fight goes, the less chance Gaethje has of winning it because his only chance of winning is really just to knock him out. I don't think he's got the energy to wrestle for five rounds. If he submitted Charles Oliveira, that'd be the internet would completely collapse. So the only chance he has is knocking him out on the feet. And Oliveira's shown enough against enough guys to show that that's not a guarantee either. It should be exciting, but if Trevor Whitman pulls this one off, it'll probably be his best coaching job ever because he's got a guy who is clearly outgunned and has a clear weakness in two-thirds of mixed martial arts. Good stuff there, sir. All right. Um, what was the share? Yuri Prohaska. I think we're going to have a new champion there. What about you? Well, 
Before we talk about this, and this is just going to be me being very tacky as usual. Last time Jerry Jerry lost was to King Mo Lawal, guy who helped him with that game plan to beat Jerry. That's me. So I want to know against him. Anybody wants some tips, feel free to call me. I mean, it's just a fact. These are just facts. You can call King Mo, he'll tell you. These are facts. Knockout win over him. Want to know. Schwann's here. Jerry's down here. I hope he wins because then I want to know against the light heavyweight champion. I just like that. Huh? They rematched though, didn't they? I was not a part of that. I was not part of that corner. Ain't got nothing to do with me. Okay. <laughs> I'm one to know again, so I can't vouch for these other people. Should have come back to the sword. Maybe it would have happened again. Anyways, but um, it's a tough, it's a tough matchup for Glover Teixeira. Um, uh, he he's, I mean, he's obviously got the the seasoning. He's got the will to win. He's got the grappling. He's got even the wrestling to a certain degree. But unlike Jan. Jerry is very dynamic. Jerry is very explosive. And Jerry is, he doesn't have the fear that Jan has. He's not just going to be afraid to take chances. He's not going to be afraid to press. He's not going to be afraid to push a pace, even on the ground. He'll explode out of bad spots. He'll try to get back up to inflict punishment. He'll, he'll take chances on the feet to get to Glover because he feels he can get Glover out of there. So while I think that Jerry will expose himself repeatedly to being finished, I have my doubts as to whether Glover can be in the fight long enough to find to wear him out or to, for him to make a mistake that he can capitalize on. I'm not saying it's impossible because Glover is impressed a lot, but Glover has a problem with athleticism. He has a problem with big, strong guys, and now he's got the most athletic and this, the most dynamic guy in the division in front of him, and he's going to be another year older by the time that fight happens. Interesting. I'm definitely picking um, for Hospital to win. I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna hurt Glover early, and I think he's gonna be able to um, finish him as well. There. Uh, let's flip the script over to. Um, Wait, hold on one second. For one second. Let me see what this dude is doing. <laughs> Swan's cat has been made it very clear that every Wednesday when we tape, that's now time to scream bloody murder. And every week for the last like three weeks, if you go back and watch our past episodes, that cat is screaming like it is being abused. When in reality, it just wants a little bit of attention. My two are over here being super quiet as usual. And you see that Shawan has his over there screaming and, and yelling at the top of at the top of his lungs. But we're gonna, All right. we're gonna flip over and talk about some boxing now because I saw an interesting piece on ESPN.com uh, where they were talking about what's next for Canelo, and they gave us three options. They gave us Jamel Charlo. They gave us triple, and, and Charlo, they kind of, they, they laid it out. Charlo is the most um, expected fight of the three. But they gave us uh, Jamel Charlo. They gave us Triple G as an option. And Dimitri Bival, is that right? Bival. Bival, okay, so those are the three options. Of those three, which one do you see Canelo fighting and when? I, I'm expecting him to fight probably next in May, uh, Cinco de Mayo weekend. So uh, when do you see him fight, or excuse me, who do you see him fighting if that's the next big weekend? I don't think it's Golovkin because Golovkin's supposed to fight in Japan against Murata, and that's going to be a huge payday for him. That's going to be big money, big advertisements, big money inside and outside of the ring. I can't imagine he's going to turn that down just to fight Canelo. I know it's a big fight, but he'd want that fight after he faced Murata. But honestly, Canelo's already beaten him clearly. I don't know that Canelo even thinks that's worth his time. It's kind of a move backwards because he's fighting well over 160 and 
Golovkin still is 160. I don't think he's going back down to 160. Um, Bivol is interesting, but Bivol doesn't really he, – he doesn't have a, a big presence outside of the hardcore boxing. It would be the most di- difficult fight and challenging, but I don't know if it's the most financially rewarding as far as exposure and as far as opening himself to a different market and being able to sell the fight. Um, he probably goes to Charlo. Charlo's brash. Charlo talks. He has a lot of knockouts. He's supposedly been chasing Canelo for years and years, and it's a fight that a lot of people want. So I, I would think PBC has got the biggest offer, and I would think it'd be the best chance of him having another breakthrough pay-per-view, and then it'd be finally him fighting a world championship black fighter, which people say he's consistently ducked, even though he's beaten multiple world champion black fighters. But they keep saying he's afraid of him. So this ends that conversation, and it's the easiest fight to make. Easiest fight with the least amount of hang-ups as far as contracts and things. So what else is going on in the world of boxing? I looked around today before we hopped on the show, try to find a couple of different topics. What else is, is um, popping out in the world of the square circle? Well, the big news was Gary Russell Jr., who was the longest reigning champion in boxing. I think he held his title for six years, maybe seven. Um, he lost his title to a Manny Pacquiao fighter, Mark Masaiko, if, I re- if I'm saying it correctly. Um, Gary Russell Jr. is a guy who has great physical tools, great technical school tools, probably one of the better boxers in this generation, probably one of the most gifted boxers of this generation. But instead of being known for his blazing fast hands, his high IQ, or his skill set, what he's known for is a guy who fights like once or twice a year. He's had the title for almost six years. I think he's defended it six times. He just doesn't fight very often. He was holding out for big fights. He was holding out for big names. And he was never able to wrangle one in except for when he fought Lomachenko, before Lomachenko became big and he was defeated. But he regained his title and he had been continuing to fight on. And he lost his fight. He got injured in it. But essentially, oh, I can't stand this cat. Essentially what happened is he did what a lot of guys nowadays do. They don't fight often. So they don't stay sharp. And if they get older, some of those physical tools they have don't age as well because you're not actively fighting. You're not out there testing yourself. So they fought a young, big, strong guy who was fast, and you started seeing you started seeing the loss of physical skills. You started seeing a little bit loss of physicality. People are going to point to the fact that he got injured in the fight. I think part of him being injured is the fact that he's been active. He hasn't fought for two years, and then he goes from not fighting in two years to fighting a world class opponent who's not just a mandatory who's got skills and experience, he's facing a guy who's got comparable athleticism. Against one of his typical mandatories, he has enough skills and enough athleticism to outclass them. But what he did against a guy who maybe the gap in speed is only this much and the gap in power is much broader and the gap in size and physical strength is much broader, the usual buffer zones he has, the safety zones he can go to, the way he can scare guys off with his speed and sharp punches, it did not exist against this guy. And so in a fight that he probably would have won against a lesser opponent, eked out, he wasn't able to do it. He was out hustled late. He was kind of backed up and he wasn't able to put enough. He wasn't able to put enough shots together or put enough blunt the guy's pressure enough to win the fight. People are going to say he was injured, but that's part of fighting. I've seen world class guys beat other world class guys one hand. Gary Russell Jr. just was unable to do it. And as a result now, he's taking quite a tumble because he's never been a very popular champion. He's never been an active champion, and the only thing he had to bring people to the table was the fact that he was a long-standing world champion, and now he's not even that. The one good thing about him waiting so much and not fighting often, I believe, this is just my belief, 
I believe he's been on the decline for the last two or three years. But you didn't notice it because, A, he's fighting mandatories who aren't of his caliber skill-wise and aren't of his caliber athletically. So you never saw that retardation as far as his physical skills and deterioration. You didn't see him fight enough to really notice it. You didn't see him fight good enough athletes to notice it. But once you saw him facing real speed and you saw him facing a guy he couldn't just clearly outclass in every area, you know, those hands weren't as quick. Those reflexes weren't as sharp. And that timing was not pinpoint like you expected with him. The boxing skill was there. The IQ was there. But those physical advantages he's leaned on heavily weren't there to the degree they used to be there. And that comes from inactivity and age. And he's, I think, 30, I want to say he's in 32, maybe 33. He's getting older and he spent the majority of his time talking about fighting people and very little of his time actually fighting world-class opponents. So if you look at his record carefully, the two best athletes he faced, I guess the two best guys he faced, I guess given the fact that this guy Mark is on his way up and he was a guy who, who a prospect who turned into a legitimate contender, you could say against the two best athletes he faced, the two best toughest tests he had physically, he lost and he lost fairly decisively. Lomachenko and now Masaigo. So that kind of puts a ding on his his reputation. And for a guy who was the longest reigning champion in boxing until this weekend, it was one of the most uneventful, unexciting and unmemorable reigns ever. It's just a more of a question of what could he have been if he had more more willingness to fight more? And wh- who could he got who could he have gotten in the ring with them if he had made his grievances in the ring instead of just doing 50,000 interviews outside of it and having one fight for every 2,000 interviews he did. Some good insight there, sir, as usual. Good insight. So let everybody know what you're working on as we go ahead and close out the show for this week. And uh, we'll shut things down and come back for episode 230 next week. Let us know. Um, Just, I mean, I got an article I'm going to do for another site, Severe MMA, breaking down the... uh, Kavanaugh versus court fight for Bellator. I've already still got the article about Kobe Covington. They'll probably get released around the time for the Masvidal fight. I still have the article with a Carolina Kovacavich that I really think a lot of people would like just because most people talk about someone as they ascend and they talk about all the things that were done right, all the things that set them up. This is doing the reverse. I talk about every mistake that was made from how her camp trained her to how they viewed her to how she fought and how that led her down to the path she's at from going from being a number one contender title challenger to being somebody who probably couldn't even be, who couldn't probably be the top 15 girl in her division. And I have some insight into that because I helped Claudia Gedalia team, her team when they were with a, in New Mexico, her other team, when she fought Kovacavich. So I had an idea. I had to do a lot of research as far as her fighting, her fighting style, how they trained her and how they viewed her. I had to do a lot of research on that. So I have like I feel like I have a better than average view as to the mistakes that were made that led her to the point of being that where she's not even really shown to be even competent in the cage anymore. So hopefully uh, those two pieces get released in the near future. And uh, other than that, I'm just kind of engaging people on on the wet on the on Twitter. You know, you want to talk about cornering, you want to talk about fighters, you have a fighter, you want to know what they should improve or where they're lacking at. Um, I do that kind of stuff all the time and. Uh, a lot of fighters don't like it. Neither do their camps, but that's not my problem. So, Good stuff there, sir. I am working on covering as much pro wrestling as possible, slowly getting back into the flow of covering more MMA. Um, I'm working on a piece about Ngannou's next steps that will probably be on, on uh, MMA ratings maybe sometime later on this week. But with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close out because we 
are at about an hour here, and um, we're trying to keep the show to about an hour or so. So thank you to everyone who has joined us for tonight's episode. You can always find us across multiple podcasting platforms, and you can check us out at MMARatingsNet.com, which are our flagship, or hit us up at MMA Ratings on YouTube. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to all of our content there. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we will be back next week for episode 230. Have a great night and a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe.